Interesting people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On the 25th of May, 1798, a man named Mick Hayden led hundreds of civilians armed with rudimentary weapons such as hastily made pikes into the centre of Carlo, a small town in the southeast of Ireland. The scene must have been reminiscent of the Peasants' Revolt some 400 years earlier, but unlike Wat Tyler's motley crew of pitchfork-wielding labourers, these rebels were confronting a powerful opponent armed with modern weaponry, guns and cannons. In hindsight, it looks a lot like a suicide mission, and for many of them it was, because unbeknown to them, the British had been tipped off and laid on in an ambush. What followed was a massacre, but just a generation earlier, Carlo would have seemed like the last place you'd expect to see an insurrection, as John Kelly of the Carlo Historical and Archaeological Society explains. If you look at Carlo in 1777, Thomas Campbell wrote an account of Ireland and at that stage he says when you approach Carlo to see an altars, the country is seemingly to be entirely occupied by gentlemen's parks walled in, recently planted and delightful when the trees are grown. The town is pleasantly situated on the River Barrow. Very cheerful appearance. Large number of white houses scattered up and down. A good flesh market and all the appearance of a good English village. Linen industry. A very big uh, boat trade. A lot of produce and trading was done on the river. So it, it seemed to have been a, a quite prosperous provincial town. In a book that was written recently about Carlo, Carlo History and Society, which is a, it's a big overview of Carlo. But one of the, the contributors to that says, at that stage, the late 1700s, rent values were rising. So the, the actual town was starting to improve. There was a number of fires in the town previous to that. And the manor of the town was badly run. But rent values were rising, economic factors were strengthening, and social concerns were becoming apparent. Carlo always had a, a big mix of the different types of religion. Cardinal Panzerini in the, I think in the 1600s, called Carlo a cesspot of heresy because there was different confessionals in Carlo. There were Protestants, there was Catholics. We also had would have had a, a size Huguenot community who moved to Carlo, but they, they didn't last long. They lasted about 20, 25 years. These some assimilated and then moved on. And Farrell, who of course was very involved in, in writing about the rising and was a, a central member of the United Irishmen in Carlo, he said that in no town in Ireland was there a friendlier feeling between Catholics and Protestants and even blood relationships than in Carlo at that time. While Carlo had a relatively peaceful and integrated society, that wasn't the case in the rest of Ireland. The trouble really kicked off when Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church and subsequently took a much greater interest in Ireland, a country technically subject to the British monarchy, but one that had largely been left to its own devices. His daughter Elizabeth made attendance at what we'd now think of as Anglican churches mandatory. Her sister Mary then reintroduced Catholicism, and so it went on with James I, Oliver Cromwell, James II and William of Orange variously championing Anglicanism, Puritanism or Catholicism with a variety of legislative acts and sometimes violence. Ultimately, the country was divided along religious lines, with members of the official church holding office and receiving special privileges. 
Non-conformists, such as the Presbyterians, were subjected to some level of discrimination. And lastly, you had the Catholics, the group that represented the majority of the population. They were subject to onerous laws, which among other things, banned them from inheriting land, or from holding office. It was a volatile situation, and one that boiled over on a national level in 1798, as Professor Tom Bartlett explains. The 1798 rebellion in Ireland is something which needs to be considered in a variety of contexts. One broad context is that the rebellion in Ireland was not unique. There were rebellions all over the Western world in that 50-year period from 1770 to about 1820. The American Revolution is the most obvious one. The French Revolution as well, of course. But also in South America, in Haiti, in the Netherlands as well, and in Ireland. I think that's general context, that broad context has to be considered. That Ireland is not an outlier. It, it fits in with the age of revolution. Now, why there should be an age of revolution and what was the background to that is another question. The second context is, I think, the example of America and the example of France. America showed that the imperial power was vulnerable. The Americans win the war with French help. They become the United States of America. No one could have believed it because the British Empire was you know, dominating the world and yet the 13 colonies saw them off. The French Revolution, again, with its dethroning of the king, execution of the king, separation of church and state, general levy on mass, mass armies, all of this destabilized the general consensus that had existed in Western Europe for the previous hundred years. And Ireland was caught up in that as well. For Irish Protestants, the example of America was very important. The American colonists seemed to be, by and large, of a Presbyterian or Protestant background. So that made them quite comfortable. The Irish Protestants were quite comfortable with that. The French, on the other hand, were anything but Catholic, but nonetheless, Irish Catholics had long had an affection for France, had long seen France as a sort of a deliverer. And when the French began to offer aid to people struggling to be free, military aid to people struggling to be free, it had a reception among Irish Catholics. And the third context is there were sectarian relations in Ireland, sectarian troubles in Ireland, which had not abated since the 1690s or even since the 1640s. Protestants were the dominant class. They were the ascendancy. They ran the show. Catholics had very few political rights. That position changed a little bit towards the, 18th, the end of the 18th century. But by and large, Protestants were the ascendancy and Catholics were the oppressed class. That set up attention that protestants were always on edge that catholics despite what they might show as smiling faces and easygoing ways were in secret plotting to cut their throats the first opportunity they got and in a sense these three contexts come together the british empire with its massive gains in india north america canada with its requirement for large numbers of troops to garrison that empire destabilizes the entire world really because france and spain are envious want revenge it sets up financial troubles for britain which leads them to put pressure on the american colonists and so on so that destabilization is sort of fundamental to the whole 1798 rebellion
And of course, with the French Revolution, Irish leaders, Irish, those who are outside the charmed circle, begin to think that they should have some, some say. So they want parliamentary reform. They form a society, the United Irishmen, which looks for parliamentary reform, which will give a voice to those who have no voice, which will be more representative of the people. It's fair to say that the government regarded parliamentary reform as a decoy duck that they saw that as simply a cloak to separate Ireland from Britain. And the notion of Ireland being separated from Britain was simply not on the table. This was not something that could be tolerated at all. It would lead to Britain's ruination. It would lead to Ireland being occupied by a foreign country like France or Spain or whatever. The Irish simply could not rule themselves. They could not govern themselves. That was an article of faith. And then, like that, there were the resentments, the sort of the rancor which resulted from the penal laws in the 18th century, which resulted from memories of 1690, memories of 1641. And these all come together, these three streams, if you like, come together to explain the, the background to the 1798 rebellion in Ireland. These factors soon seeped into Carlo, where religious conflicts began to arise, as John Kelly told me. Sister Mara Duggan, who wrote a thesis on 1798 in Carlo, which was never actually published, she said that the French Revolution caused radicalism and sectarianism to become forces in Carlo. At that stage, then in Carlo, 1797, Robert Cornwall, who was one of our, our famous characters, he started reporting general dissatisfaction, and there was a murder of a farmer in Lockton Bridge called Bennett, which really sort of moved things along and, and caused a lot of upset in the, in the Protestant community. Dissatisfaction with the political and religious issues coalesced into an organised movement when an alliance of reform-minded individuals led by a man named Wolf Tone formed the Society of United Irishmen. Professor Tom Bartlett provided me with some more insight. The United Irishmen as a group, that was initially mainly formed of Presbyterians. It is, it's largely formed of Presbyterians, but there's some Protestants involved and some Catholics joined soon after. It's set up in Belfast in October 1791 and a month later in Dublin. There's a preponderance of Protestants in Dublin, that is Church of Ireland, preponderance of Presbyterians in Belfast, but nonetheless there are Catholics involved in both societies. Though I have to say, given that Catholics are presumably 75-80% of the population, they're not in proportion to their numbers in the general population. There was a Catholic middle class. The United Irishmen were middle class. The Catholic middle class was not nearly as substantial as that as Protestants or Presbyterian. They both drew comfort from the French Revolution in 1789. For the Irish Protestants, I guess, the feeling was that the French Jacobins offered liberty and equality, a role perhaps that they were denied. It was very much a class-based society. If you were well-born, you had lots of property, then you were fine. If you weren't well-born, then you weren't fine. Presbyterians also looked on events in France and believed that this was not just a revolution in France, this was the most important event since the birth of Christ 2,000 years before and that it had a, a significance far surpassing what normal coup d'etats and revolutions and revolts had. Remember, France was the most Catholic country in the world. France was the sword arm of the Catholic Church. Within a heartbeat, the French monarchy had been overthrown. The French had separated church and state. Irish Presbyterians in particular, looking at this, saw in this the fulfillment of some prophecies which they located in the Bible. 
that this was the beginning of something really, really significant. For Irish Presbyterians, there was a view that, in a way, that history was on the move. You really had to get on board with it, and they looked to that. For Irish Catholics, on the other hand, they looked at what the French were doing, remembered that the French had been their allies in the 17th century, saw that the French were offering help to people struggling to be free, one of the reasons why Britain went to war with France. Irish Catholics saw France as an ally. So, in a curious way, both Protestant and Catholic saw the French Revolution as a, a significant event from which both could benefit. And from that, the United, the United, and the United Irishmen drew support from all of that. The activities of the United Irishmen soon attracted the attention of the British authorities, who began to clamp down on suspected rebels. In Carlo, this responsibility fell to the High Sheriff, Robert Cornwall. Reports of his activities were later recorded by witnesses, including William Farrell, who himself had been a member of the United Irishmen. John Kelly provided me with some more background. There were some surrenders of arms then by the United Irishmen, and Cornwall broke up a meeting actually with the United Irishmen in Ullard on the Kilkenny border in the autumn of 1797. The establishment of the Orange Order in, in 1798 in, in Carlow. Some of the main members of the Carlow aristocracy were already members of Lodge 176 in Dublin, which became the Grand Lodge for Ireland previous to that. The proportion of Carlow aristocracy in 176 was quite high. All these things were going on. And then, of course, you had the United Irishmen being formed. I think the United Irishmen came from a more political viewpoint, firstly. They say they're Catholic Protestants in the centre. It's reckoned there was 14,000 United Irishmen at its peak in the county, about 900 in Carlow. A lot of local business people and tradespeople were involved in United Irishmen. Mara Duggan again talks about a nucleus of radicalism was found in, in, in an intelligent and literate and ambitious group of men, chiefly artisans, small merchants and skilled workers. So that was the movement. But if you look then at the non-radicals or the general population, I feel they viewed it as a sort of United Irishman, to a certain extent, as a benevolent society. And a lot of people joined it to be part of a movement they thought was going to bring change. I don't think that they ever really contemplated rebellion to start with anyway. A lot of their meetings were held in public houses, so you were never going to have secrecy then. But there were a number of spies, and Thomas Finn, who wrote Slaughter and Carlo, who anonymously, but we're almost certain Thomas Finn wrote it, he named five different informers. Now, the big one was Henry Rogers, and Henry Rogers was actually second in command of the United Irishmen in Carlo. Farrell says that he could have been the one who actually brought the order to start the rising down from Dublin. But he also opposed Farrell. He joined the United Irishman Farrell, but he was never really a radical. When Peter Ivers suggested we make pikes, Farrell sort of said, what are we making pikes for to go against modern weaponry? And he wanted to give up the pikes, and Rogers opposed him. Ivers was arrested. Rogers was then Hayden's right-hand man. And he also led, it was supposed to have led the column to come from the Castle Dermoside up Dublin Street. But there's also a number of other informers or, or people who gave evidence. Um, John Finn, who gave evidence against Sir Edward Crosby, who was the only Protestant member of the gentry to be executed in Carlow. There was also a man called Donoghue from Tullo, Murphy from Kellistown, and intriguingly, someone Finn describes as a grey-haired ruffian living in Carlow, but he never named him. There was always a bit of a taint in Carlow around Farrell himself because he tried to call off the rising. He claims he didn't, and his book really is sort of an apology for his actions as well. And he sort of lived in isolation for the rest of his life after the rising. Farrell's book is called Carlow in 98, and it's his reminiscences of the rising. He started writing when he was 66 and finished when he was 73. 
1845 and he was living as a gatekeeper in the Carlo Lunatic Asylum. So he wrote, and he gave instructions that it wasn't to be published till after his death. Interestingly, RTE, our national broadcaster, actually made a film of the book in 1966 to do with the 1916 Rising commemoration. Farrell seems to be a self-justification in mm-hmm. terms of his book and you wouldn't be convinced really that he was a radical when you read it so this rogers guy who they think was an informer do you think he was always a fifth columnist or do you think he was someone who was involved and then just got cold feet it's hard to know farrell writes a good bit about him in his book and farrell said that he was sort of a bully from when he was growing up but the family apparently were an old catholic family who held land and had money previously so there might have been a bit of resentment there he was a member of the of the carlo militia as well i was looking at his records are actually in the uk national archives there's very little this just says that he was in the militia farrell says i always kept him at arm's length for all the persons there were few i disliked more than a braggadocio or a bully it's hard to know but he was in the militia a volunteer regiment to, to supplement the army Mick Hayden, when the rising came along, he taught the militia and part actually of the dragoons as well would rise in support of the rebellion, but obviously they didn't. That's Rogers. And Rogers also gave evidence against um, Sir Edward Crosby. He was the the main person actually, and it has been pointed out that his evidence was only hearsay, that he had no actual really evidence against Crosby at all. So Professor Bartlett, prior to the rebellion and during the rebellion, there were a lot of instances like in Carlo where the authorities got wind to what was happening and set up ambushes. There were arrests of people beforehand. Is that indicative of the society at the time? Because when I hear all of this stuff about informers and spies, it makes me think about East Germany or something. Was it that kind of oppressive regime or was this more born of people who were conflicted who didn't necessarily want to see violence erupt and were passing on stuff? It's a little bit of both. I think... If I say that 18th century Ireland was a surveillance society, that's probably exaggerating it. But there was no doubt that people kept an eye on each other and Protestants kept an eye on what Catholics were doing and wrote very often. Postmasters were expected to open letters, were expected to keep tabs on what was going on. Customs officers were expected to keep an eye on what was going on in the various ports, stuff coming in, going out, who was coming in, who was going out. There were a lot of self-appointed busybodies who would report on neighbours, suspicious comings and going after midnight and so on. There is a level of, of surveillance. The problem is, of course, is that essentially so much surveillance was been carried out that nobody had an idea what was real and what was nonsense. They just couldn't sort out what was really good intelligence from what was hysterical rubbish. That is the problem. There certainly were, in the run-up to the the rebellion in May 1798, there certainly were a lot of arrests, very brutal interrogations. I certainly feel in my heart that those preemptive strikes explain why rebellions went off at half-cock in certain counties, or didn't happen at all in other counties. They just were not able to deal with them because they had arrested the leaders and thus nothing much happened in certain counties. Carlo would be one. Limerick would be especially an example. Plenty of United Irishmen in Limerick, but the leaders were all arrested before the rebellion. So nothing happens in Limerick essentially in 1798. In Wexford, however, they had no information as to what was going on in Wexford. Wexford was supposed to be a very loyal county. So it was ignored by the authorities. The result was that Wexford had been united Irishman 
from top to bottom, and thus the rebellion in Wexford was huge. Given the era, we didn't have TV, cell phones, all that kind of stuff. In the rural areas, do we know much about if people were even aware of this plan, or was it more kind of targeted towards metropolitan areas? The reality was that the government was very adept at picking up leaders, and those leaders had particular information which they kept to themselves, so that in areas where the leaders were not picked up, there was a pretty decisive turnout of rebels ready to take on the Crown forces. In other areas where leaders were lacking, it was very much a, a make-up leadership that came forward. In the accounts that were written afterwards explaining what happened, there was a feeling that people wrote, we didn't know really who the leaders were or what they were, or what they wanted. They were local leaders, I suppose, people who, were, who, had, a, who had a local reputation, mm -hmm. but not people who had a broader understanding of what was going on in Dublin and elsewhere. That, again, was one of the reasons why the rebellion sort of petered out after significant success in Wexford, particularly. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, there was some debate within the United Irishmen as to whether they could kind of do it themselves or if they had to rely on the French, then obviously the French fleet ran into issues, wasn't able to yeah, land. that was an ongoing debate. What to do? To wait for the French? If you wait for the French, government forces had been given a free hand. Mm -hmm. and I mean, it certainly encouraged, ordered to go way beyond what the law required in terms of flogging, shooting, burning, house destruction. And what they'd been told is that if you wait for the French, we will be destroyed by the time the French get here. On the other hand, if we rise up now, we may have a chance. But I have to say, as a historian reviewing the fortunes of rebellions over the previous 200 years, no rebellion, and I mean no rebellion, had succeeded in the Western world without foreign help. The Americans needed the French and the Spanish. Even the Dutch needed the English and even in, 16, in the 1640s, the English Civil War, the English needed the Scots to come to their aid. You could not do it on your own. You needed an outside body with men, material, arms, equipment. And to attempt to go alone was hugely problematic. On the other hand, what do you do if you wait longer? The leaders had been arrested by in, in March, April 1798. Government forces were destroying all sorts of United Irish cells. If they had waited another few months, United Irish organisation on the ground would have been completely wrecked. What to do? I don't know what the answer to that is, but it was a serious dilemma. And there were two camps, as you can imagine. One saying, we got to go now. The other saying, no, we got to wait. The plan that they had, insofar as we can discover the plan 200 plus years after that Dublin would be seized. That was crucial. And the counties surrounding Dublin would rise up in support and prevent reinforcements getting to Dublin. No doubt about it. If Dublin had fallen, if Dublin Castle had fallen, then that would have been, to exaggerate slightly, a shot that would have been heard around the world. The problem was that Dublin Castle Centre of Authority in Ireland was well briefed on United Irish plans and they flooded Dublin with troops. So there was no chance of rebels gathering in any particular spot in Dublin. With Dublin more or less in lockdown, the rebellion went off around Dublin. But the counties that, are, that surround Dublin, Meath, Kildare, Carlow, Wicklow and so on, these were supposed to be sideshows to the main event. 
But with nothing happening in Dublin, the sideshows became the main event themselves, even though they were never designed to be that. And that's where things began to go seriously astray. It seems like the rebels weren't particularly well armed. Do you think, or is there any evidence that they were hoping that once things got underway, that maybe troops and paramilitaries who were aligned with the government might suddenly flip sides and come over to the rebels? That was seriously added into the rebel armory that at the first shot, large numbers of troops on the government side would defect to them. And certainly the United Irishmen had devoted a lot of attention to suborning troops in the government side. It didn't happen. The government hunted out possible United Irish sympathisers from the forces. About 20 were executed. Scores were flogged pretty severely. And hundreds were sent abroad, usually to the West Indies, sentenced to serve for life, which, given the disease in the West Indies at that time, meant a very short period of time before you succumbed to yellow fever or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when the crunch came, the troops, militia, yeomanry, fencibles, regular soldiers proved stalwart. They shot the rebels. They even shot each other when ordered to in terms of firing squads. The rebels were living in perhaps a little bit of make-believe in thinking that the troops would desert to them. There was an example, perhaps, when the French arrived at Killala Bay at the end of the rebellion under General Humbert at Killala in Mayo. And at the first big battle at Castlebar, large numbers of Irish soldiers fled and some joined the French. This was seen as really just showing how unreliable Irish soldiers were. On the other hand, the Irish soldiers who joined the French were told that they were compelled to join or else they would be shot. But whatever way you cut it, the soldiers who were in the service of the king, by and large, were true to their oath and to their commanding officers and did exactly what they were supposed to do. So, John, Peter Ivers was the leader of the United Irishmen in Carlo, but he was arrested and replaced before the rebellion with Mick Hayden, who, as far as we know, didn't have any kind of military background. At that point, were the rebels destined to failure? When the government proclaimed United Irishmen and Cornwall and, and other local leaders started rounding them up and pitch-capping people, and I think what a, a real trigger as well, uh, although that the rebellion was authorised from Dublin, in a tie, which is 12 miles from Carlow, they had set up a triangle in, in the main square so that they had to whip people on with the cat of nine tails and stuff like that, and that really spooked, I think, the rebels in Carlow as well. There's obviously a sense of disbelief, if you look at it in hindsight, how they thought they could defeat the army and of course it was a trap they were led straight into a trap and it was a very small number of, of troops actually that put them down there was about six they reckon there was about 600 killed and there was some horrific stories Carlo basically has at that stage had two roads Dublin Street and Tullow Street which intersected so they marched down Dublin Street and where those roads the potato market was in the centre of the town they were fired from the potato market and they fired also from the top of the town but it was a lane that called Lowry's Lane where there were houses in and they were set on fire and people were thrown back into them. You know, people came out and they were thrown back into the fire. That's a big folk memory in the town of what happened in Lowry's Lane. That anonymous writer that we think was Finn, he talks about a character named Best, who was particularly notorious. Best was Arundel 
Sheffield best. We have an article on him in our 2021, Carlo Viana, which will probably go up free on the website next year if people want to read it. But he was described by Farrell as one of the most violent men against the rebels at that time. A lot of the stuff that happened would have happened then afterwards as well in the roundup. I suppose other barbaric characters would have been Robert Rochford, who was called a slashing parson. A friend of mine who was written on him quite extensively said he was Carlo's answer to the pitch capping Captain Swain and just below Cornwall in terms of violence and brutality. And of course, then you have Robert Cornwall, who's the real bet noir mm-hmm. of, of the whole tone activity, who was based in Michel. Robert Cornwall was described as the first of the Carlo monsters who inflicted flagellation on the happy wretches who were abandoned to his mercy. He travelled and hunted the country with such exactness that no person could escape his fury. And he will always be remembered for burning the cross in, in Michel as well. He was particularly active against the United Irishmen. Peter Ivers, he was the Carlo delegate to the United Irishmen in the Provincial Council. And he was arrested in March in 1798 when the whole provincial was raided. A spy called Thomas Reynolds and betrayed him. Ivor was sort of removed from Carlo at that stage because he was in prison. He was born though in Tinder Island in Carlo in 1774. And he was eventually convicted and transported to Australia in 1799 aboard the Minerva, arriving in Sydney on the 11th of January 1800. During the journey over, he was himself and Brian O'Connor, who was another United Irishman, and a Catholic priest, Father James Harold, were members of a plot to mutiny on the, on the voyage, and they were locked up, I think, for 21 days in the hold. Actually, when they went on the Minerva, they were nearly, I think, a year sitting on the ship in the dock before yeah. it left. It took a long time. And he sort of falls off the records there in terms of, of, of where he went. But I did find a reference that Father Harold, who he was with on the ship, Father Harold went on to Tasmania and then back to Sydney. He says he was assisted by people, Peter Ivers of Carlow. So I'm not sure whether he ended up in Tasmania or in, in Sydney, but there is a reference in the Tasman, one of the Tasmanian genealogy magazines which I found. Mick Hayden, who was his, his successor, he escaped during the rising. His father lived in Carlow, so he got into his father's house after the battle, changed his clothes, went three miles down the river and crossed into Queen's County. And he was hiding in a farmhouse, but he was caught in the farmhouse and eventually surrounded him. He was caught climbing out the back window. He was brought back then to, to the barracks in Carlow where he was hung on the 23rd of May, um, 1798. Now, Farrell says the noose broke on the first attempt, but on the second attempt, the rope broke no more. So, Tom, there were a lot of atrocities committed by the government forces, but then there were also reprisals against Protestants. Was that something that was a continuation of things going back the last hundred years settling scores type mentality or was this decidedly different and then set a tone going forward one set of interpretation of the 1798 rebellion is summed up by sir richard musgrave who wrote a very large book 7800 pages shortly after the rebellion claiming that the rebellion was nothing but a catholic plot organized in the vatican no less to destroy protestants in ireland and in those 800 pages He details as many atrocities of Catholics on Protestants as he could possibly locate over the previous six, seven months during 1798. But he goes way back into Irish history to show that Catholic hatred and determination to extirpate Protestants is a strand in Irish history, essentially from the 16th century, if not before, and comes to fruition once again in 1798. That was a a given 18th century Ireland was a profoundly sectarian state. Catholics killed Protestants because they were Protestants and vice versa. The leaders of the United Irishmen, very many of them were Protestant. But that, of course, meant that when 
for example, Musgrave was talking about how this could be. Why would Protestant leaders encourage the, the execution of Protestant prisoners? It seemed difficult to, to rationalise that. He said, oh, they're not really Protestants at all. They're really deists, which was essentially an 18th century word for atheist, and that's the way he saw it. It would be difficult, perhaps, to decide on which side the preponderance of atrocity lay. There has never been a rebellion with overtures of civil war in which atrocities were not perpetrated. Just think of Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Croatia, Rwanda, anywhere. For people like Sir Richard Musgrave, all my discussion about the Atlantic revolutions, the Haitian revolution, troubles in South America with Bolivar, (laughs) this is all nonsense. It's all to do with Catholics have been planning to cut our throats since day one. Forget about another context. That's that's a simple one. In the aftermath of the rebellion, how did it change the society, though, going forward? Well, first of all, it was seized by the government as the opportunity to get rid of the Irish Parliament and bring in an active union. That was quite significant. And one of the pieces that I've written, I quote, when William Pitt, the British Prime Minister, gets word that a rebellion has broken out. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? His first reaction, his really his first reaction is not, let's get troops to Ireland, let's do this. His first reaction is, this is the moment to put through an active union. From that point on, the Irish Parliament was doomed. It was blamed for the rebellion. The rebellion took place on its watch. Therefore, it showed itself to be a useless institution. Therefore, it had to go. And it duly went in 1800. So that was one categorical consequence of the rebellion. The second one was that it poisoned relations in Ireland for as long as you can remember. Catholics drew pride from their turnout and the fact that they fought the soldiers. Protestants drew another lesson that Catholics who seemed to be happy and and very pleasant turned out to be really out to do them down. There's an awful lot of emphasis put on Catholic servants who turned against their masters, even though We'd always treated them well. These are common notions about all rebellion. And everyone remembers, nationalists remember the massacres at Gibbet Rath. Protestants remember massacre at Scullabogue. You were more atrocious than we were. No, you were more atrocious than we were. It's sort of like a zero-sum dialogue of the death that no one can really get beyond. To wrap things up, John, beforehand, Carlo was quite a well-integrated town. But did the events of 1798 leave a lasting legacy on the town in terms of sectarianism or political conflict? I think it recovered in terms of the town itself, but I think in terms of the psyche, it certainly, for a number of years, there was a lot of distrust between the Protestants and the Catholics, and I say that in the, in the widest, broadest terms when I use those names. If we were talking about now, we'd be saying the Nationalists and, and the Lions. Mm-hmm. But then a number of things happened as well in, in the next number of years nationally. Catholic emancipation came in in, in 1829. First Catholic MP for Carlo in 1831. Then the Land Act towards the end of the century, a few rebellions in the middle of it, and of course, the Great Famine. But there certainly was, from 1820 onwards, you can see it in, in the newspapers and that, where the rising Catholic middle class were spurred on by the likes of Daniel O'Connell to carve them out. And you can see the Brunswick clubs, things like that happening, where the Catholic middle class and probably the lower class as well were starting to, to stretch themselves a little bit and to make themselves more prominent. 
if the meagre evidence we have before 1798 that Carlow was a, a tolerant town and there was good relations between Protestants and Catholics, and we can't say that for certain because there's not a huge amount of, of records, but certainly after up to probably the 1840s, 1850s, there was a big divide. But Carlow would have had a lot of working class Protestants as well and farm workers as well. So there, there would have to be some interaction there as well. The other effect from 1798, I think, is that Carlo became really a big garrison town after that. There was all the social problems, prostitution, things like that as well, that comes from having a large military force based in the town. To learn more about the topics we discussed in this episode, check out the bonus content where I talk to John Kelly of the Carlo Historical and Archaeological Society about how you can trace your Carlo or broader Irish relatives. You can also listen to my podcast on the Orange Order, where I talk to the Grand Lodge of Ireland's historian, Dr. Jonathan Matson. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.